1: Welcome to Two-Way Street. I'm Bill Nygut. It's always seemed to me that Christmas is a time traveler, a holiday that's alive in all time periods at once. On one hand, the season offers us the great gift of being able to absorb fully what it means to live in the present moment. Our senses are set aflame by music and lights, the smells of a kitchen in full holiday blast, the bracing chill in the winter air, the warm circle of family gatherings, and the joy of watching children blazing with anticipation. We feel the now of it so completely. And yet, as Charles Dickens certainly understood, Christmas conjures up the past as perhaps nothing else in our lives does. Grandma bought that star on top of our tree just a year before she died. Isn't it beautiful? Don't you miss her? Do you remember how we laughed last year when you broke the serving platter just before taking the turkey out of the oven? You had to serve it resting on tinfoil? You made this hot plate with your handprint in it when you were in kindergarten. It was the first Christmas present you ever gave me. In his joyous and heartbreaking short story, A Christmas Memory, Truman Capote shares his fondest memories of a boyhood Christmas. And it's clear, as we read it, that those long-ago holidays remained with him forever. Capote was born in New Orleans. His mother, Lily Mae Falk, was just 17 and hardly prepared for raising a boy. His father was a salesman, and he, too, was ill-equipped to provide the stable life a child should have. When his parents divorced, Capote, at age four, was sent to live with distant relatives in Monroeville, Alabama. It's a small town about halfway between Montgomery and Mobile. He quickly formed a deep bond with one of the cousins in the house, Nanny Rumley Falk, a maiden lady in her 60s. He called her Sook. She called him Buddy. And as he recounts in A Christmas Memory, they became closest friends. It was in Monroeville that he made another great friend, Harper Lee, who went on to fame as the author of To Kill a Mockingbird. She was a Monroeville neighbor. The friendship with Sook ended when Capote's mother remarried and brought him to live in New York City. By that time, he was already a prolific writer. He says he started writing fiction when he was 11. His earliest professional efforts were short stories. In the 40s, he was published all the time by major magazines like The Atlantic, Harper's, The New Yorker, and others. He eventually became best known for two longer works, his novella Breakfast at Tiffany's and the chilling groundbreaking journalistic novel In Cold Blood. But Capote will probably be most beloved for a Christmas memory, his retelling of the holiday seasons he spent with Cousin Sook. The story was published originally in Mademoiselle magazine in 1956, but since then it's been reprinted countless times in anthologies And it's been the subject of numerous films and TV specials. In just a moment, we'll travel back in time to a 1930s Christmas in Monroeville, Alabama, where we'll meet a young boy known as Buddy and his best friend Sook. A Christmas memory begins after this break. If you're just joining us, welcome to our holiday edition of Two Way Street. We're reading Truman Capote's beloved short story, A Christmas Memory. It's a memoir of the adventures that he and his best friend, a much older distant cousin, had at Christmas time when he was a young boy in Monroeville, Alabama. Imagine a morning in late November. A coming of winter morning more than 20 years ago. Consider the kitchen of a spreading old house in a country town. A great black stove is its main feature. But there's also a big round table and a fireplace with two rocking chairs placed in front of it. Just today, the fireplace commenced its seasonal roar. A woman with shorn white hair is standing at the kitchen window. She's wearing tennis shoes and a shapeless gray sweater over a summery calico dress. She is small and sprightly, like a bantam hen, but due to a long, youthful illness, her shoulders are pitifully hunched. Her face is remarkable, not unlike Lincoln's, craggy like that, and tinted by sun and wind. But it is delicate, too, finely boned, and her eyes are sherry-colored and timid. Oh, my, she exclaims, her breath smoking the window pane. It's fruitcake weather. The person to whom she is speaking is myself. I am seven. She is sixty-something. We are cousins, very distant ones, and we have lived together, well, as long as I can remember. Other people inhabit the house, relatives, and though they have power over us and frequently make us cry, we are not on the whole too much aware of them. We are each other's best friend. She calls me Buddy, in memory of a boy who was formerly her best friend. The other Buddy died in the 1880s when she was still a child. She is still a child. I knew it before I got out of bed, she says, turning away from the window with a purposeful excitement in her eyes. The courthouse bell sounded so cold and clear, and there were no birds singing. They've gone to warmer country, yes, indeed. Oh, buddy, stop in biscuit and fetch our buggy. Help me find my hat. We've 30 cakes to bake. It's always the same. A morning arrives in November, and my friend, as though officially inaugurating the Christmas time of year that exhilarates her imagination and fuels the blaze of her heart, announces, it's fruitcake weather. Fetch our buggy. Help me find my hat. The hat is found a straw cartwheel corsaged with velvet roses that out of doors is faded. It once belonged to a more fashionable relative. Together we guide our buggy, a dilapidated baby carriage, out to the garden and into a grove of pecan trees. The buggy is mine, that is, it was bought for me when I was born. It is made of wicker, rather unraveled, and the wheels wobble like a drunkard's legs. But it is a faithful object. Springtimes, we take it to the woods and fill it with flowers, herbs, wild fern for our porch pots. In the summer, we pile it with picnic paraphernalia and sugarcane fishing poles and roll it down to the edge of a creek. It has its winter uses, too, as a truck for hauling firewood from the yard to the kitchen, as a warm bed for Queenie, our tough little orange and white rat terrier who has survived distemper, and two rattlesnake bites. Queenie is trotting beside it now. Three hours later, we're back in the kitchen, hauling a heaping bagful of windfall pecans. Our backs hurt from gathering them. How hard they were to find. The main crop, having been shaken off the trees and sold by the orchard's owners, who are not us, among the concealing leaves, the frosted, deceiving grass. Crackle, a cheery crunch, scraps of miniature thunder sound as the shells collapse and the golden mound of sweet, oily, ivory meat mounts in the milk-glass bowl. Queenie begs to taste, and now and again my friend sneaks her a mite, though insisting we deprive ourselves. We mustn't, buddy. If we start, we won't stop. And there's scarcely enough as there is for thirty cakes. The kitchen is growing dark. Dusk turns the window into a mirror. Our reflections mingle with the rising moon as we work by the fireside in the firelight. At last, when the moon is quite high, we toss the final hull into the fire and, with joined sighs, watch it catch flame. The buggy is empty. The bowl is brimful. We eat our supper cold biscuit bacon, blackberry jam, and discuss tomorrow. Tomorrow, the kind of work I like best begins. Buying cherries and citron, ginger and vanilla, and canned Hawaiian pineapple, rinds and raisins and walnuts and whiskey, and oh, so much flour, butter, so many eggs, spices, flavorings. Why, we'll need a pony to pull the buggy home. But before these purchases can be made, there is the question of money. Neither of us has any except for skin-flint sums persons in the house occasionally provide a dime is considered very big money or what we earn ourselves from various activities holding rummage sales selling buckets of hand-picked blackberries jars of homemade jam and apple jelly and peach preserves rounding up flowers for funerals and weddings once we won 79th prize five dollars in a national football contest not that we know a fool thing about football It's just that we enter any contest we hear about. At the moment, our hopes are centered on the $50,000 grand prize being offered to name a new brand of coffee. We suggested A.M. And, after some hesitation, for my friend thought it perhaps sacrilegious, the slogan, A.M., amen. To tell the truth, our only really profitable enterprise was the fun and freak museum we conducted in a backyard woodshed two summers ago. The fun was a stereopticon with slides of Washington and New York lent us by a relative who had been to those places. She was furious when she discovered why we'd borrowed it. The freak was a three-legged biddy chicken hatched by one of our own hens. Everybody hereabouts wanted to see that biddy. We charged grown-ups a nickel, kids two cents, and took in a good $20 before the museum shut down due to the decease of the main attraction. But one way and another, we do each year accumulate Christmas savings, a fruitcake fund. These monies we keep hidden in an ancient bead purse, under a loose board, under the floor, under a chamber pot, under my friend's bed. The purse is seldom removed from this safe location except to make a deposit. Or, as happens every Saturday, a withdrawal. For on Saturdays, I'm allowed 10 cents to go to the picture show. My friend has never been to a picture show, nor does she intend to. I'd rather hear you tell the story, buddy. That way I can imagine it more. Besides, a person my age shouldn't squander their eyes. When the Lord comes, let me see him clear. In addition to never having seen a movie, she has never eaten in a restaurant, traveled more than five miles from home, received or sent a telegram, read anything except funny papers and the Bible, worn cosmetics, cursed, Wished someone harm, told a lie on purpose, let a hungry dog go hungry. Here are a few things she has done, does do. Killed with a hoe, the biggest rattlesnake ever seen in this county. Sixteen rattles. Dip snuff, secretly. Tame hummingbirds, just try it, till they balance on her finger. Tell ghost stories, we both believe in ghosts, so tingling they chill you in July. Talk to herself take walks in the rain, grow the prettiest japonicas in town, know the recipe for every sort of old-time Indian cure, including a magical wart remover. Now with supper finished, we retire to the room in a faraway part of the house where my friend sleeps in a scrap quilt-covered iron bed painted rose pink, her favorite color. Silently wallowing in the pleasures of conspiracy, we take the bead purse from its secret place and spill its contents on the scrap quilt. Dollar bills tightly rolled and green as May buds, somber fifty-cent pieces heavy enough to weigh a dead man's eyes, lovely dimes, the liveliest coin, the one that really jingles, nickels and quarters worn smooth as creek pebbles, but mostly a hateful heap of bitter-odored pennies. Last summer others in the house contracted to pay us a penny for every twenty five flies we killed. Oh, the carnage of August! The flies that flew to heaven! Yet it was not work in which we took pride. And as we sit counting pennies, it's as though we were back tabulating dead flies. Neither of us has a head for figures. We count slowly, lose track, start again. According to her calculations, we have twelve dollars seventy three cents. According to mine, exactly $13. I do hope you're wrong, buddy. We can't mess around with 13. The cakes will fall. Or put somebody in the cemetery. Why, I wouldn't dream of getting out of bed on the 13th. This is true. She always spends 13ths in bed. So to be on the safe side, we subtract a penny and toss it out the window. Of the ingredients that go into our fruit cakes, whiskey is the most expensive as well as the hardest to obtain. State law forbids its sale, but everybody knows you can buy a bottle from Mr. Ha ha Jones. And the next day, having completed our more prosaic shopping, we set out for mister Haha's Ha-Ha's business address, a sinful, to quote public opinion, fish fry and dancing cafe down by the river. We've been there before and on the same errand, but in previous years our dealings have been with Haha's has wife. An iodine, dark Indian woman with brassy, peroxided hair and a dead, tired disposition. Actually, we've never laid eyes on her husband, though we've heard that he's an Indian, too. A giant with razor scars across his cheeks. They call him Ha-Ha because he's so gloomy, a man who never laughs. As we approach his cafe, a large log cabin festooned inside and out with chains of Garish, gay, naked light bulbs and standing by the river's muddy edge under the shade of river trees where moss drifts through the branches like gray mist, our steps slow down. Even Queenie stops prancing and sticks close by. People have been murdered in Haha's Cafe. Cut to pieces. Hit on the head. There's a case coming up in court next month. Naturally, these goings-on happen at night when the colored lights cast crazy patterns and the Victrola wails. In the daytime, Ha-Ha's is shabby and deserted. I knock at the door. Queenie barks. My friend calls, Mrs. Ha-Ha, ma'am, anyone to home? Footsteps. The door opens. Our hearts overturn. It's Mr. Ha-Ha Jones himself. And he is a giant, and he does have scars. He doesn't smile. No, he glowers at us through Satan-tilted eyes and demands to know what do you want Ha-Ha for. For a moment, we're too paralyzed to tell. Presently, my friend half finds her voice, a whispery voice at best. If you please, Mr. Ha-Ha, we'd like a quart of your finest whiskey. His eyes tilt more. Wouldn't you believe it? Ha ha! is smiling, laughing too! Which one of you is a drinking man? It's for making fruitcakes, Mr. Ha ha, cooking. This sobers him. He frowns. That's no way to waste good whiskey. Nevertheless, he retreats into the shadowed cafe and seconds later appears carrying a bottle of daisy yellow unlabeled liquor. He demonstrates its sparkle in the sunlight and says, Two dollars. We pay him with nickels and dimes and pennies. Suddenly, jangling the coins in his hand like a fistful of dice, his face softens. Tell you what, he proposes, pouring the money back into our bead purse. Just send me one of them fruit cakes instead. Well, my friend remarks on our way home, there's a lovely man. We'll put an extra cup of raisins in his cake. The black stove, stoked with coal and firewood, glows like a lighted pumpkin. Egg beaters whirl, spoons spin round in bowls of butter and sugar. Vanilla sweetens the air, ginger spices it. Melting, noise-tingling odors saturate the kitchen, suffuse the house, drift out to the world on puffs of chimney smoke. In four days, our work is done. Thirty-one cakes, dampened with whiskey, bask on window-sills and shelves. Who are they for? Friends. Not necessarily neighbor friends. Indeed, the larger share are intended for persons we've met maybe once, perhaps not at all. People who've struck our fancy. Like President Roosevelt. Like the Reverend and Mrs. J.C. Lucy, Baptist missionaries to Borneo who lectured here last winter. Or the little knife grinder who comes through town twice a year. Or Abner Packer, the driver of the 6 o'clock bus from Mobile, who exchanges waves with us every day as he passes in a dust cloud whoosh. Or the young Wistons, a California couple whose car one afternoon broke down outside the house and who spent a pleasant hour chatting with us on the porch. Young Mr. Wiston snapped our picture, the only one we've ever had taken. Is it because my friend is shy with everyone except strangers that these strangers and merest acquaintances seem to us our truest friends? I think yes. Also, the scrapbooks we keep of thank yous on White House Stationery, time to time communications from California and Borneo, the knife grinder's penny postcards make us feel connected to eventful worlds beyond the kitchen, with its view of a sky that stops. Now, A nude December fig branch grates against the window. The kitchen is empty. The cakes are gone. Yesterday we carted the last of them to the post office where the cost of stamps turned our purse inside out. We're broke. That rather depresses me, but my friend insists on celebrating with two inches of whiskey left in Ha Ha's bottle. Queenie has a spoonful in a bowl of coffee. She likes her coffee chicory-flavored and strong. The rest we divide between a pair of jelly glasses. We're both quite awed at the prospect of drinking straight whiskey. The taste of it brings screwed-up expressions and sour shudders. But by and by, we begin to sing, the two of us singing different songs simultaneously. I don't know the words to mine, just come on along, come on along to the dark town strutter's ball. But I can dance. That's what I mean to be a tap dancer in the movies. My dancing shadow rollicks on the walls. Our voices rock the chinaware. We (laughs) giggle as if unseen hands were tickling us. Queenie rolls on her back. Her paws plow the air, and something like a grin stretches her black lips. Inside myself, I feel warm and sparky as those crumbling logs, carefree as the wind in the chimney. My friend waltzes round the stove, the hem of her poor calico skirt, pinched between her fingers as though it was a party dress. Show me the way to go home, she sings, her tennis shoes squeaking on the floor. Show me the way to go home. Enter. Two relatives, very angry, potent with eyes that scold, tongues that scald. Listen to what they have to say, the words tumbling together in a wrathful tune. A child of seven. Whiskey on his breath. Are you out of your mind? Feeding a child of seven. Must be loony. Road to ruination. Remember Cousin Kate? Uncle Charlie? Uncle Charlie's brother-in-law? Shame. Scandal. Humiliation. Kneel. Pray. Beg the Lord. Queenie sneaks under the stove. My friend gazes at her shoes. Her chin quivers. She lifts her skirt and blows her nose and runs to her room. Long after the town has gone to sleep and the house is silent, except for the chiming of clocks and the sputter of fading fires, she is weeping into a pillow, already as wet as a widow's handkerchief. "'Don't cry,' I say, sitting at the bottom of her bed and shivering, despite my flannel nightgown that smells of last winter's cough syrup. "'Don't cry,' I beg, teasing her toes, tickling her feet. "'You're too old for that.' "'It's because.' she hiccups. I am too old. Old and funny. Not funny. Fun. More fun than anybody. Listen, if you don't stop crying, you'll be so tired tomorrow, we can't go cut a tree. She straightens up. Queenie jumps on the bed, where Queenie is not allowed, to lick her cheeks. I know where we'll find pretty trees, buddy, and Holly, too, with berries big as your eyes. It's way off in the woods, farther than we've ever been. Papa used to bring us Christmas trees from there, carry them on his shoulder. That's 50 years ago. Well, now, I can't wait for the morning. In a moment, we'll continue with Truman Capote's beloved short story, A Christmas Memory. I'm Bill Nygut. This is Two Way Street. joining us welcome to our holiday edition of two way street we're reading truman capote's beloved short story a christmas memory it's a memoir of the adventures that he and his best friend a much older distant cousin had at christmas time when he was a young boy in monroeville alabama morning frozen rime lusters the grass The sun, round as an orange, and orange as hot-weather moons, balances on the horizon, burnishes the silvered winter woods. A wild turkey calls. A renegade hog grunts in the undergrowth. Soon, by the edge of knee-deep, rapid-running water, we have to abandon the buggy. Queenie wades the stream first, paddles across, barking complaints at the swiftness of the current, the pneumonia-making coldness of it, we follow holding our shoes and equipment a hatchet a burlap sack above our heads a mile more of chastising thorns burrs and briars that catch at our clothes of rusty pine needles brilliant with gaudy fungus and molted feathers here there a flash a flutter an ecstasy of shrillings reminds us that not all the birds have flown south Always the path unwinds through lemony sun pools and pitch vine tunnels. Another creek to cross. A disturbed armada of speckled trout froths the water round us, and frogs the size of plates practice belly flops. Beaver workmen are building a dam. On the farther shore, Queenie shakes herself and trembles. My friend shivers, too, not with cold, but enthusiasm. Out of her hat's ragged roses sheds a petal as she lifts her head and inhales the pine-heavy air. We're almost there. Can you smell it, buddy? She says, as though we were approaching an ocean. And indeed, it is a kind of ocean. Scented acres of holiday trees, prickly-leafed holly, red berries shiny as Chinese bells, black crows sweep upon them, screaming. Having stuffed our burlap sacks with enough greenery and crimson to garland a dozen windows, we set about choosing a tree. It should be, muses my friend, twice as tall as a boy, so a boy can't steal the star. The one we pick is twice as tall as me, a brave, handsome brute that survives thirty hatchet strokes before it keels with a creaking, rending cry. Lugging it like a kill, we commence the long trek out every few yards we abandon the struggle sit down and pant but we have the strength of triumphant huntsmen that and the trees virile icy perfume revive us goad us on many compliments accompany our sunset return along the red clay road to town but my friend is sly and non-committal when passerbys praise the treasure perched on our buggy what a fine tree "'And where did it come from?' "'Yonder ways,' she murmurs vaguely. "'Once, a car stops, and the rich mill owner's lazy wife leans out and whines, "'Give you two bits cash for that old tree!' "'Ordinarily, my friend is afraid of saying no. "'But on this occasion, she promptly shakes her head. "'We wouldn't take a dollar.' "'The mill owner's wife persists. "'A dollar my foot! Fifty cents! That's my last offer!' "'Goodness, woman, you can get another one.' In answer, my friend gently reflects, "'I doubt it. There's never two of anything.' Home. Queenie slumps by the fire and sleeps till tomorrow, snoring loud as a human. A trunk in the attic contains a shoebox of ermine tails, off the opera cape of a curious lady who once rented a room in the house, coils of frazzled tinsel gone gold with age, one silver star, a brief rope of dilapidated, undoubtedly dangerous candy-like light bulbs. Excellent decorations as far as they go, which isn't far enough. My friend wants our tree to blaze like a Baptist window, droop with weighty snows of ornament. But we can't afford the made in japan splendors at the five and dime, so we do what we've always done, sit for days at the kitchen table with scissors and crayons and stacks of colored paper, i make sketches and my friend cuts them out lots of cats fish too because they're easy to draw some apples some watermelons a few winged angels devised from saved up sheets of hershey bar tin foil we use safety pins to attach these creations to the tree as a final touch we sprinkle the branches with shredded cotton picked in august for this purpose my friend surveying the effect clasps her hands together now honest buddy Doesn't it look good enough to eat? Queenie tries to eat an angel. After weaving and ribboning holly wreaths for all the front windows, our next project is the fashioning of family gifts. Tie-dyed scarves for the ladies, for the men a home-brewed lemon and licorice and aspirin syrup to be taken at the first symptoms of cold and after hunting. But when it comes time for making each other's gift, my friend and I separate to work secretly. I would like to buy her a pearl-handled knife, a radio, a whole pound of chocolate-covered cherries. We tasted some once, and she always swears I could live on em, buddy. Lord, yes, I could, and that's not taking his name in vain. Instead, I'm building her a kite. She would like to give me a bicycle. She said so on several million occasions. If only I could, buddy. It's bad enough in life to do without something you want, But confound it, what gets my goat is not being able to give somebody something you want them to have. Only one of these days I will, buddy, locate you a bike. Don't ask how. Steal it, maybe. Instead, I'm fairly certain she is building me a kite, the same as last year and the year before. The year before that, we exchanged slingshots, all of which is fine by me, for we are champion kite flyers who study the wind like sailors, My friend, more accomplished than I, can get a kite aloft when there isn't enough breeze to carry clouds. Christmas Eve afternoon, we scrape together a nickel and go to the butcher's to buy Queenie's traditional gift, a good gnawable beef bone. The bone, wrapped in funny paper, is placed high in the tree near the silver star. Queenie knows it's there. She squats at the foot of the tree, staring up in a trance of greed. When bedtime arrives, she refuses to budge her excitement is equaled by my own i kick the covers and turn my pillow as though it were a scorching summer's night somewhere a rooster crows falsely for the sun is still on the other side of the world buddy are you awake it is my friend calling from a room which is next to mine and an instant later, she's sitting on my bed, holding a candle. Well, I can't sleep a hoot, she declares. My mind's jumpin' like a jackrabbit. Buddy, do you think Mrs. Roosevelt will serve our cake at dinner? We huddle in the bed, and she squeezes my hand. I love you. Seems like your hand used to be so much smaller. I guess I hate to see you grow up. When you're grown up, will we still be friends? I say, always. But I feel so bad, buddy. I wanted to give you a bike. I tried to sell my cameo Papa gave me. Buddy, she hesitates as though embarrassed. I made you another kite. And then I confess that I made her one, too, and we laugh. The candle burns too short to hold. Out it goes, exposing the starlight, the stars spinning at the window like a visible caroling that slowly, slowly, Daybreak silences. Possibly we doze. But the beginnings of dawn splash us like cold water. We're up, wide-eyed and wandering while we wait for others to waken. Quite deliberately, my friend drops a kettle on the kitchen floor. I tap dance in front of closed doors. One by one, the household emerges, looking as though they'd like to kill us both. But it's Christmas, so they can't. First, a gorgeous breakfast. Just everything you can imagine, from flapjacks and fried squirrel to hominy grits and honey in the comb, which puts everyone in a good humor except my friend and I. Frankly, we're so impatient to get at the presents, we can't eat a mouthful. Well, I'm disappointed. Who wouldn't be? With socks, a Sunday school shirt, some handkerchiefs, a hand-me-down sweater, and a year's subscription to a religious magazine for children, The Little Shepherd. It makes my blood boil. It really does. My friend has a better haul. A sack of satsumas, that's her best present. She is proudest, however, of a white wool shawl knitted by her married sister. But she says her favorite gift is the kite I built her. And it is very beautiful though not as beautiful as the one she made me, which is blued and scattered with gold and green good conduct stars. Moreover, my name is painted on it. Buddy, Buddy, the wind is blowing. The wind is blowing. And nothing will do till we've run to a pasture below the house where Queenie is scooted to bury your bone. And where a winter hence, Queenie will be buried too. There, plunging through the healthy, waist-high grass, we unreel our kites, feel them twitching if the string like skyfish as they swim into the wind. Satisfied, sun-warmed, we sprawl in the grass and peel satsumas and watch our kites cavort. Soon, I forget the socks and the hand-me-down sweater. I'm as happy as if we'd already won the $50,000 grand prize in that coffee naming contest my how foolish i've been my friend cries suddenly alert like a woman remembering too late she has biscuits in the oven you know what i've always thought she asks in a tone of discovery and not smiling at me but a point beyond i've always thought a body would have to be sick and dying before they saw the lord and i imagine that when he came it would be like looking at the baptist window pretty as colored glass with the sun pouring through Such a shine, you don't know it's getting dark. And it's been a comfort to think of that shine taking away all the spooky feeling. But I'll wager it never happens. I'll wager at the very end, a body realizes the Lord has already showed himself, that things as they are, her hand circles in a gesture that gathers clouds and kites and grass and queenie pawing earth over her bone. Just what they've always seen was seeing him. As for me, I could leave the world with today in my eyes. This is our last Christmas together. Life separates us. Those who know best decide that I belong in a military school. and So follows a miserable succession of bugle-blowing prisons, grim, reveille-ridden summer camps. I have a new home, too, but it doesn't count. Home is where my friend is, and there I never go. And there she remains, puttering around the kitchen, alone with Queenie, then alone. Buddy, dear, she writes in her wild, hard-to-read script, yesterday Jim Macy's horse kicked Queenie bad. Be thankful she didn't feel much. I wrapped her in a fine linen sheet and rode her in the buggy down to Simpson's pasture, where she can be with all her bones. For a few November, she continues to bake her fruitcake single-handed, not as many, but some. and of course, she always sends me the best of the batch. Also, in every letter, she encloses a dime wadded in toilet paper. See a picture show and write me the story. But gradually in her letters, she tends to confuse me with her other friend, the buddy who died in the 1880s. More and more, 13s are not the only day she stays in bed. A morning arrives in November, a leafless birdless, coming of winter morning, when she cannot rouse herself to exclaim, Oh, my! It's fruitcake weather! And when that happens, I know it. A message saying so merely confirms a piece of news some secret vein had already received, severing from me an irreplaceable part of myself, letting it loose like a kite on a broken string. That is why Walking across a school campus on this particular December morning, I keep searching the sky, as if I expected to see, rather like hearts, a lost pair of kites hurrying toward heaven. Good people
0: this Christmas time Consider when our good god for us has done in sending his beloved son with mary holy we should pray to god with love this christmas day in bethlehem
1: Some years ago, North Carolina native Eli Evans, a historian and former speechwriter for Lyndon B. Johnson, wrote a book called The Lonely Days Were Sundays. The title spoke volumes about his experience of growing up Jewish in the Christian culture of the South. It's not that Jews are dissatisfied with the holidays and rituals we call our own, but there are times when the allure of Christian traditions are pretty irresistible. Christmas is a great example. When I tell friends how much we love to listen to Christmas music in our house, some of them seem surprised. But why should they be? There are so many wonderful holiday songs. And many of them, of course, were written by Jewish composers. Love White Christmas? Thank Irving Berlin. When my wife, the playwright Janice Schaefer, was a little girl growing up in northeast Atlanta, she was dazzled by the splendor of the Christmas trees that stood in all their tinseled, ornamented and brilliantly lit glory in the homes of her non-Jewish friends. As you'll hear in this story she wrote a number of years ago, she ached for a tree of her own. Here's Janice Schaefer reading her story, Christmas Tree Envy.
0: I still feel guilty about it, even now. I mean, I was six years old at the time. What did I know? Well, I did know that good girls were supposed to eat latkes and spin dreidels and be grateful, and it wasn't like my poor parents didn't do all they could to make Hanukkah special. They let me schlock up the whole house with paper dreidels and ancient coins cut from silver foil. We spent hours singing the only Hanukkah song in existence. Dreidel, 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 I made it out of clay. We were even the first house on the street with an electric menorah. But I'm sorry. A menorah with eight candles, no matter how special, just can't compete. In spite of all their efforts, I came down with a bad, bad case of Christmas tree envy. The overwhelming desire to accessorize shrubbery, to dress foliage, to choreograph a parade of light, tinsels, and trinkets. My parents tried to appease me by sending me over to Suzanne Fisher's house to help decorate her tree, And for hours, we sang all those Christmas songs and ate dozens of sprinkled cookies and drank warm hot chocolate. The great part was they let me put the gold glittering star on the very top. Suzanne's dad hoisted me up on his wide shoulders, and I still had to reach to the very top of the tree. And then he held me there for a minute so I could take it all in. The tiny tin soldiers, the crocheted mouse, the crystal snowflakes. As soon as my feet touched the hardwood floor, I was off running to see my dad. I could hardly catch my breath. My eyes were shining and my braids were still swinging behind me when I began my Christmas tree plea to my father. I told him about the star and the tiny sled and the glass balls, and then I finished big with what Mr. Fisher had told me, that, oh, Tannenbaum, you know the song, oh, Tannenbaum. Well, Tannenbaum means, are you ready for this, dad? I think this will change everything. It means... Christmas tree! Christmas tree! Tannenbaum! We know lots of Jewish Tannenbaums! Louise Tannenbaum! Max Tannenbaum! He wasn't buying it. Then I reminded him about the Arnolds and the Hanukkah bush. Same concept, except it was decorated in silver and blue and topped off with a mug and David, the six-pointed star. But to my father, a Christmas tree was a line in the sand never to be crossed. A direct insult to our proud heritage, a slap in the face of Moses, Ezekiel, and Elijah. We had our own heritage, our own traditions. We didn't need theirs. Of course, my father did have the largest collection of Christmas music in the Southeast, Bing Crosby, Tony Bennett, even our girl Barbara Streisand. Plus, my father was born on December 25th, so we'd always have this huge holiday-slash-birthday party that all the Jews in Atlanta would attend. And that was okay for him. But never a tree, and I did my best to let it go. I remember Christmas had come and gone when the family at the bottom of the street finally dragged their tired tree to the curb. There it sat, alone, abandoned, crying out to be born again at the hands of a six-year-old Jewish girl. I had to move quickly before the garbage truck would whisk her away. With quiet desperation, stealthily, I slunk down the hill of our street and pounced on that poor tree, wrapping my tiny hands around the dying bark and slowly I began dragging that nine-foot tree up the hill. Nothing would stop me. This was my tree. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Just like the Grinch inching his sled up the mountain, I tugged and pulled at that tree until finally she lay resting on her side, dead square in the front yard of 1042 Robin Lane, our house. With great care, I began collecting the slivers of tinsel miraculously still on the tree and then I walked around and around it, trying to imagine what would be the most fitting, the most glorious dressing for my tree. Then my inspiration came. I had a stunning vision of toilet paper in orange juice cans. I ran inside to gather my supplies, smuggling them out under my shirt, and standing on my tippy-tippy toes, my mouth slack with concentration, I began to drape that tree, and toilet paper. There was pale pink, blue, and white. It was lovely, but it called for more. So gingerly, I placed the orange juice cans atop the most majestic branches. Then for the top, what could be more fitting than my raggedy Ann doll tied like a prisoner at the stake? It was really pretty. You should have seen it. Everyone who drove by in their cars admired my tree. They didn't really say anything. They just shook their heads in amazement and smiled softly. The sun was starting to go down and threw a soft light on the orange juice cans. She was perfect. Stunning. Wow there was suddenly music, too. My dad's favorite, White Christmas. It was getting louder and louder in my head. I began to circle my tree, slowly at first, and then it became this kind of dance, and my arms were swinging pastel ribbons of toilet paper, and my saddle Oxford blurred beneath me as I went faster and faster around my tree, singing at the top of my lungs, Oh Christmas tree, oh Christmas tree, we love all the bombs. It was no wonder that I didn't hear the rusting muffler of my father's Catalina convertible scrape over the cement driveway. How long had he sat in the dimming light watching his youngest child dance her pagan dance? I froze when I saw him. What could I do? I clutched my hands and hid the toilet paper behind my back and looked down at the wintry brown leaves on our lawn. It felt like forever as he crunched his way across the grass to me. His blue eyes never wavered. He didn't say a word, but took my hand and led me inside. I thought for sure he'd make me give back the new denim gauchos, the striped olive cowl neck I'd gotten for Hanukkah, and all of the lip smackers, the tube socks, and the love's baby soft bubble bath. But he didn't. My father didn't have to say a word. I saw his disappointment, and that was enough. That was more than 40 years ago that I decorated that tree in our front yard with toilet paper and orange juice cans. My one an only Christmas tree. I have to tell you that after all these years, I've grown to appreciate the simplicity of the Hanukkah celebration. But somewhere, deep down, I still get a thrill from a Christmas tree.
1: That was my wife, Atlanta writer Janice Schaefer's story, Christmas Tree Envy. Janice still does have a fondness for Christmas trees, as long as they're in other people's houses. As for us, We've accumulated more than two decades of warm and wonderful Hanukkah memories. Most years, we gather our two grown children, Bill and Emma, and our daughter-in-law, Caroline, around our kitchen table, where we each light our individual menorahs. This year was different, of course. We lit candles while socially distanced and wearing masks, and we quickly went back outside to sit in a safer space. But the ritual remains the same. We turn out all the other lights in the house, so the candles are our only illumination. We sing the Hanukkah blessings, and then, we, and then we place non-cash bets on which candle will burn the longest. Our menorahs are now covered in deep coatings of wax as years of candles have burned to their nubs. The wax reminds us of just how long we've celebrated this holiday together. But that doesn't mean my wife doesn't like a great Christmas song. Do you have a favorite Christmas song you'd like us to use to play out the show?
0: Sure. I'll be home for Christmas. Uh-
1: Our thanks go out to the Truman Capote Literary Trust for granting us permission to read A Christmas Memory. It's a great pleasure to take just a brief break from talking politics to read his wistful story of Christmas's past. We're going to take the next couple of days off, so this is my last chance to wish you a very Merry Christmas from the wonderful team I am so fortunate to work with. Engineer Jesse Neiswanger, producer Sam Burmas dawes and senior producer... Amelia Brock. I couldn't ask for better people to know and work with. We'll be back with you on next Monday. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nigut. Please take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, and enjoy the season.